This podcast is brought to you by Franklin Covey and the author of a new book entitled Management Mess to Leadership Success. Please listen to podcast number 728, where Scott and Greg discuss some of the 30 challenges that Scott has developed to assist leaders in spite of their humanness and the messes we make to become better leaders. A few of the challenges include demonstrating humility, thinking abundantly, listening first, and declaring your intent. The 30 challenges are divided into three sections, lead yourself, lead others, and get results. As Scott says, I'll be one of the first to admit that leadership isn't always rewarding. It can feel like a bottomless pit of problem solving in adult sitting. Leadership is exhausting, repetitive, and requires a consistent stretch of your emotional and intellectual skills. Please listen to podcast number 728 in this engaging discussion about some practical applications you can use to manage people and to do it more effectively by using some of the 30 challenges outlined in Scott's new book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. I know you will enjoy this engaging and informative podcast with author and EVP of Franklin Covey, Scott Miller. You can learn more about the book by visiting www.managementmess.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And as I do, Jason, every time I'm on my show, I like to thank the listeners that come from around the world to listen to the words of wisdom from the authors. And again, we always love hearing from everybody. So please send in your notes, uh, any comments you have, uh, enter them on the blog, an opportunity for you to do that. Um, today, joining me from Huntington Beach, California is Jason Richmond, and Jason is the author of a new book out called Culture Spark, um, The Ultimate Plan for a Winning Culture, Five Steps to Ignite and Sustain Organizational Growth. Good day to you, Jason. Yeah, thank you, Greg, and, and thank you for having me on this morning. Well, it's a pleasure having you on, and it's a pleasure uh, being able to speak with you today not only about culture, we get a lot of stuff about leadership and culture that comes through here, but really, um, you know, about your perspective on this. And I'm going to let the listeners know um, something about you, because I think it's important that they know um, your background. Jason is an in-demand keynote speaker, widely recognized as noted authority on helping companies build strong, sustained revenue growth by empowering their employees and developing energizing office cultures. Uh, during his career of more than 20 years, he has assisted companies of all sizes in all varieties of industries. He's had not only worked closely with established Fortune 100 companies to create leadership development journeys, but also providing uh, thought leadership and innovative consulting services to a range of mid-sized firms. In partnership with Dale Carnegie, he has become a valued resource for many organizations helping them implement talent development paths, culture paths, succession plans, and learning strategies. Jason has captured best practices from successful organizations and integrated them into the core principles that form the foundation of Ideal Outcomes, which is his website. You can actually go to um, culturespark.io to learn more about Jason, uh, his services, and the book we're going to be talking about. So Jason, you know, there are a lot of books out today. And I always ask authors when it's appropriate, you know, why did you write the book? And what have you found that's really absent from corporate cultures today that you continually see over and over and over again? Um, 
that needs to either be learned or relearned. Mm-hmm. And and thanks for asking that, Greg. You know, I can't I can't tell you how many hours um, I've invested in my in, in within my career. You know, sitting in conference rooms and boardrooms with colleagues, with executives, for middle level middle level level leaders. You know, talking about tackling these business challenges that are related to organizational culture. Um, what I found in all these all these years and meetings and progress is that it's difficult for most executive leaders, you know, to really have meaningful discussions and then execute on on those discussions and actually produce outcomes, you know, regarding the this abstract broad topic of culture anyway. Um, it, really, I found you know you go a little deeper in in anal- analyzing all these all these opportunities, all these conversations. That organizations really struggle with developing a deliberate culture because they they don't know where to start. Executives don't know where to start. Key leaders don't know where to start. And in in chapter two of of my book Culture Spark, you know I've I've really identified uh, a couple key words there, a couple key concepts that's really absent in a lot of corporate cultures, and and that's authenticity and accountability to actually execute that culture plan. So, you know, in today's world and in, in, in relationship to, to high performing cultures, really, you've got to consider employees and customers and their desire or their craving for what I call, you know, the real deal, which is mm-hmm. really a big part of, of today's business reality. Yeah. And authenticity is something that, you know, hopefully everybody in the company has, but a lot of times they don't. And I think it's important. Uh, that people understand what it is and why it's so important because that's what people are seeking today more than anything. Think vulnerability yeah. too, you know, leaders in leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and you discuss six myths about corporate culture. What are they and why is it important for the listeners, especially who are in mid-management or upper management that are listening to this podcast, um, should know about the myths of corporate culture? Yeah, and I, I wrote about those myths in chapter two early on in the book because they're there are some common misconceptions that really get in the way, get in the way of the efforts and the process to actually be deliberate in forming the culture that, that you're looking for. The, the first myth is it's an HR job. You know, organizational culture is really the responsibility of everyone inside the organization to create and maintain. So it's, it's not just the creation of it, but it's the sustainability. The second myth is that perks create great cultures. You know, perks are a part of it. Perks are part of the workplace climate. Perks are desirable, right? But culture is about the emotional connection we have, you know, with our workplace. The Greg, the third myth is hiring for culture doesn't matter. You know, in all the interviews I did and all the research I've done in my years of experience working with organizations, thousands of leaders would agree with me that if you just hire the smartest or the brightest, that may not work that might not be a winning ticket for you. The fourth one is that great culture is expensive. Well, if you, if you peel the onion, if you, if you break it down, if a company is able to really define the new workplace to, to embrace and celebrate individuality and empowerment of their people, you know, so they can actually achieve their independent individual potential, organizations will be rewarded many times over. And the, the fifth myth there is culture is created on your own. And I love this one because culture is, culture is really what happens when no one pays attention. Mm-hmm. And, 
And if, if you let your culture form that way, you, you could ultimately pay a pretty, a pretty big, a pretty big price. Um, left to its own devices, culture often, often bubbles up negatively within an organization. And those yeah. are really the, the five common myths that I really, really talk about most. Well, you know, culture is like fine-tuning an instrument, right? Um, yeah. if you want to get the best out of it. You want to get the best sound out of it. Um, you want to get the highest quality out of it. You need to constantly work on it. You've got to tune it. You've got to practice it. Um, and I think that's what people think, well, it can just run on its own, but it doesn't just do that. That's why somebody like you is hired. Now, we talked a minute ago about the authenticity gap in corporations. Um, what is the gap? How would you advise the leaders listening to this podcast to really close that gap? You know, if they're actually seeing signs where that authenticity isn't showing or somebody's, you know, in this case, uh, faking it, thinking they're going to fake it until they make it, how would you tell them to actually be more authentic and not be afraid? I think that part of the reason is there's a fear associated with being authentic because you think you're going to be wrong, right? Yep, and, for sure. and where we see this a lot is with nurses in hospitals, right? Or even doctors, uh, you know, sometimes they don't tell the truth. It is getting better. Um, yeah. But because of the insurance element, we found that that happened a lot inside of medical organizations. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, in, in all my, in my research and actually in, in the book, I referenced um, a global study um, that was done in 2017 titled Authenticity is an Uncertain World. And, and one of the key points that research really produced or found is that nearly 84% of Americans really equate a CEO's integrity with that of the companies they lead. There is a direct correlation with the perception of CEOs and individuals and leaders with, with the, you know, the companies they're actually leading. So ne nearly half of the perceptions and beliefs about a company are based on the behaviors of executives of that company and really how that company impacts society in today's world. You know, that authenticity gap, you asked, you know, where does that come from? You know, really often, and, and you touched upon it in, in the medical industry, but often that gap is created uh, due to corporate politics, um, ego, ego, ego is a big part of that, uh, market pressures, uh, pressures from stakeholders, boards, you know, key leaders, internal competition, and then, you know, sometimes it just boils down to individuals having a high level protection of their own corporate turf. And we get yeah. into that in, in, in some of, in, in, in more detail, but, you know, you asked me, you know, how can we close that? I think simply companies really have to embrace a new reality of business today they need to operate in a transparent and authentic way. And, and doing that means that they align all aspects of their business with what the customer is expecting. Right. And, and I think if, if you can put that into your vision and your strategy about culture, make sure you're encompassing about what the customer expects, that's going to help you close those gaps. Well, it's it's certainly something there needs to be discussions about. You know, inside these companies, people need to open up and they need to be honest with these discussions. And along that line, you were you tell a story about tailored brands and uh, Hector Pens, I think it is. Uh, 
Can you tell us uh, why this example of a culture was so great? This is uh, the, also the company that owes, owns Joseph Bank. Um, and, and something a little bit about your cultural pillar you called Lion, L-I-O-N. That was theirs, actually, not yours. But um, that was what uh, impressed me. It was one of the stories that impressed me. So let our listeners know a tad about that. Yeah, I've, I've sprinkled a lot of really good success stories um, throughout the book in, in regards to organizations that, that have, have really deliberately take, took ownership of their culture. And, and Tailored Brands is one of those. They've been very deliberate and very strategic um, in formulating their culture. And, it, you know, I, I always say this is very evident when you, when you walk into a men's warehouse or you walk into a Joseph A. Bank, you know, whether, if, whether you're in Los Angeles or, or New York City, the customer experience is the same and and they pride themselves taylor brands pride themselves on customer service the belief they have in people communication open and honest and transparent communication leadership and respect and they took those core principles and they really branded those cultural beliefs if you refer if you will and refer them to them as lion and lion stands for lead with the customer that's the l Customers come first, and what does the customer want? We talked about that earlier. Um, the I is inspire the change. So inspire your team, and not by cheerleading and motivating, but by trusting and not micromanaging. Uh, the O is own it together. And we talked about that earlier, too, where it's not an HR job. It's it, everybody needs to own uh, the culture and how we communicate and how we lead and how we respect each other. And then the N and Lion really stands for nurture the community. And there's a lot of organizations that forget this step, but giving back is a significant part of an organizational culture today. Employees understand that, you know, the company that'll be doing, doing good, companies that'll be doing good things for good people and good societies are actually going to outperform companies that don't. Yeah. I mean, you see that all the time, you know, at companies, uh, Patagonia, and Zappos. Mm-hmm. Um, there's yep. many, many examples of uh, what I call socially responsible organizations where that drives them. There's uh, interaction between employees and their own initiatives and giving them time off work to go to things that are positive in the community, whether it's big brothers or it's building houses or it's doing whatever it is. It's really important. Now, you outline a cultural transformation model in the book. Um, can you explain your model and how it works? Because that's at the website. All the uh, listeners can go to culturespark.io to learn more about that. But uh, give us a little bit about the model itself. You know, the, the model itself is, is pretty simple, but it provides a roadmap for business leaders, whether you're at the C-suite or you're that frontline level manager or you're running a team of people it really provides a roadmap for any leader to avoid culture dilution. And, you know, regardless of what stage they are in the business development cycle, any step in the model could be integrated to, to help enhance your organizational culture. And, and there are five steps. Um, the first one starts with define. And, and before you try to change or evolve your organizational culture, you really need to determine and be able to articulate where it is today. And some of the things that that an organization needs to ask themselves or talk about in really defining their culture is they 
They need to understand their purpose, their values, their core beliefs. They need to make sure that their people strategies are in line with their business strategy. They really need to look at, you know, the organizational risk that, that they have and maybe some of their gaps. And that's part of what, that's what part of what my team does in working with organizations is that we help come facilitate these type of conversations with the right leaders to make sure that they have a clear purpose and so forth. The second step is diagnose. And I always relate this to a health situation. You know, you wouldn't want your doctor to prescribe, you know, any type of treatment to anybody before making a thorough diagnosis of your illness or, or what's ailing you. So it's common in today's fast paced world to, just try to fix it, but we need to take a step back and really let's analyze it. Let's really diagnose. Let's all, let's really figure out what's going on. Uh, the third step in that model is the plan. And again, it's not going to happen on itself. So you do have to create a plan and we've got tools and, and templates within the book that, that give you some outlines and some guidelines on how you could potentially set up a culture plan. Uh, the fourth step is measure. And if, if you forget about this, if you just start the project, get it rolling, and never come and measure it, well, there's not really going to be any accountability to it. Right? So you really do have to measure progress and, and, and track that progress. And then the last one is sustain, right? because it's not a, a one-time-fits-all. Your organization changes, it revolves, it reinvents itself over years. So you have to continually keep culture in the forefront. To, to sustain the growth and the development of that culture, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I mean, I think it's a good model and it's something that uh, all the readers should take particular notice of in the book. And on that, uh, one of those pings, which is the diagnose one, um, I'm going to ask you a question about the CEO of Kraft Foods because um, he was very concerned about the direction and the culture of the company. And he decided he wanted to create a new one, right? One with spirit of a startup. You know, you can imagine a company as bureaucratic as Kraft Foods. It's probably looking for innovation. Um, And he wanted it to be a powerhouse. How did Tony Vernon create that new culture? Because that's a real life example of a very big company trying to take, I think in this case, it was a division of Kraft and actually turn it into a very nimble, dynamic, innovative company. What did Tony have to do? Yeah, and, and he did an awful lot of things. And, and I love that story and that case study. But it boils down when, when companies get to the size and power of a, you know, Kraft Foods, it's really easy to lose sight of, of what drove that success and that growth in the first place. So bureaucracy can get in the way. Internal politics can get in the way. Red tape can get in the way. And Tony realized that. His goal was to really reinvent themselves and maintain their competitive advantage and really focused on North America. They split the company in two. And one of the main pillars of their culture transformation was the commitment that Tony and his staff, his reports, uh, the commitment they made that they would move from a culture that was built on entitlement to a lean, horizontal organization in which layers of management were eliminated. So, I mean, they, they made a commitment to restructure their organizational model in order to create the right culture. 
And that's a big commitment, and that's a hard thing to execute on it, but that's what he had to do. The commitment and accountability to execute really removed all the obstacles to having to rely on corporate headquarters and levels of leadership to get decisions made or to get answers made or to implement innovation. Yeah, it was a great um, story in the book. And I think that when people look at uh, stories about cultural transformation, and you can probably point out many of them, but I know some of them have had leaders where the culture itself is, you know, it's all, it's a reflection of the leader. It's a reflection of leadership. Um, And really the leaders have to change for a culture to change. That's really exactly. Um, If leaders aren't willing to embrace um, their newfound, let's just call it uh, their newfound perspective. Uh, Maybe it's a spiritual perspective. Maybe they've had an epiphany. And you'll find that happen in many companies. When when a leader of a company goes through something dramatic, um, they start to get, and it's not soft. It's actually, they start to get, they go inward and they think more about it. And you mentioned that as we think about our culture and how well it supports our ability to develop well-aligned processes, we look at our deep-seated beliefs about both your customer experience and your employee experience. Um, you then ask the reader to ask themselves four questions. You know, what are those questions? Why are they important? And, you know, th- this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of thing that can happen in a company is that the leaders start to ask these questions and they start to shift the culture. Yep. And, and, and you find that in chapter six when we're really talking about that planning step, you know, planning the strategy and the process alignment. And, you know, we discussed the importance of really getting your strategy and process in alignment in order to accomplish this. What we recommend in any organization is that they map and analyze both customer experience and employee experience. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer, a big fan of Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon. And he often says, Greg, if, if you are competitor focused, you have to wait until there's a competitor doing something. And actually being customer focused allows you to be more pioneering. So the questions you're referring to in in regards to the tools that you could use to to map different employee experiences and and customer experiences, things like, you know, does each of your processes exist for a reason? Or or are you really just asking employees and customers to check the box? Kind of that's the way we've always done it before. Um, Another question we talk about in there is, have you talked to your customers across the entire life cycle of your relationship? Now, how often do you really, really go out and analyze and talk to and and have a conversation with your customer to get direct, honest feedback? Um, What are the employees and customers telling you works, what doesn't work, and needs to change? I mean, from, from the individual contributor level all the way up to, you know, top leadership, an organization needs to listen to what their employees are telling them. And then what's the quality of your employees' experience with the company's internal processes? So how easy is it to use your internal learning management systems? How easy is it to do your performance review processes with employees? Um, What is the onboarding process like? And is it really effective in driving the culture you want? Those are the types of questions leaders and culture committees within organizations have to be focused on. So ultimately... 
you know, research has, has really proven that companies that excel, you know, companies that really excel at the customer experience, like a Taylor Brands, really have one and a half times more engaged employees than companies that don't. And, you know, our team at Ideal Outcomes, that's what we do. We help companies with this process, implementing these tools, help facilitating these types of discussions to help them diagnose their employees and their customers' experiences. Well, and I'm sure that's what you do well at Ideal Outcomes because that's what you're trying to get as an ideal outcome for um, your <laughs> customers and the customers Correct. of the company itself, right? So yep. everybody has a better customer experience. Jason, you speak about what you refer to as the culture journey game plan. What's the game plan and how does it assist corporations who are working to shift their culture? It's in your book. It's a great tool for people. Yep. And and that game plan is is part of step four in our model, the, the measure step. And and in chapter eight, we really dive into and provide a couple really clear specific examples of, of what that game plan might look like, but simplified for, for this conversation. It's, it's really a playbook, no different than what any professional or collegiate sports team would have, you know, before they take the field. And it's, it's designed by leaders to create and really communicate uh, their culture strategy. It, it's part of being deliberate, deliberate about building a, a culture that you're looking for. It also, uh, as a reference to use when measuring your success throughout your culture initiative. And, and part of the culture journey plan is, is really a, a scorecard at the end. That we provide a scorecard template for individuals to track success and use, you know, kind of as a lead indicator to determine what next steps or areas of focus or what gaps they might have not originally saw or anticipated. So really the, the game plan is a real interactive tool in a template, and we've actually put all those templates and interactive tools on the website that can be downloaded for free that, that people can actually use. And, and it really gives you some really clear examples of how to create a simplified playbook in order to go down this culture initiative. Yeah, it's a great book in that respect in that there are tools. There's also a lot of tools at the website. So I just want to remind our listeners um, if they go to culturespark.io, um, you'll have you'll see a box there that says culture tools. Uh, take a look at that as well. Now, in wrapping up our interview, you speak about creating cultural diversity in our organizations. What are some of the tips that you would have for the listeners today about going about creating cultural diversity? Yeah, you know, and. And, and, it, and I think I've got 10, 12 different type of tips that go into some, some detail. But in, in Chapter 10, we do address the importance of diversity. And it's, it's important because a corporate culture that embraces diversity, you know, really means that you're in sync or you're in a line with the market you serve. So, you know, a few of those, a few of those tips is really analyze your strengths and gaps. I mean, take a look internally now. Do you have a department or a group? That is well diverse. And how did that, how did that come together? Can, is there anything best practices that we can repeat to be more deliberate to set up, you know, diverse groups of teams? Um, 
look and communicate in which you operate. Workforce, you know, our workforce today, it really needs to, to reflect the world or the market that we're in. And, and that's in your community that could be on a global basis. So does your workforce really reflect, you know, your customers? And, and that's a critical thing to look, um, really look and examine at your hiring process. That would be one internal process from recruiting to hiring to behavioral interviewing to those types of things that I would encourage any organization to really take a strong look at and make sure that's in alignment to creating a diverse workforce. Um, another really good tip in organizations, I think they, they really should be encouraging, you know, mentorships and sponsorships, mm-hmm. you know, create, creating those relationships internally for growth and development with, with different diverse uh, people. And don't ever forget about actually providing diversity training to an organization, to your people, make sure that you create a culture that people, individuals are open to diversity of thought different ideas, empowerment, transparency, and so forth. But I think in the book, there's probably 10 or 12 actually pretty good tips in great detail, but those were some of the highlights, Greg. Well, I think that kind of rounds out uh, our interview, and it also rounds out a great opportunity for people who are looking to shape, mold, fine-tune their culture um, to go to your website. Um, Again, that's culturespark.io. The, you can also get the book uh, through Amazon, and we'll have a link in our blog. Uh, the book is called Culture Spark, The Ultimate Plan for a Winning Culture, Five Steps to Ignite and Sustain Organizational Growth. <clears throat> and we've been on today with Jason Richmond, um, who's the author of the book, and also the president uh, and CEO of the company called ideal outcomes. Uh, go to that a blog and you'll learn more. I should say go to that website. You'll see a blog there as well. You'll see information about the book. You can contact uh, Jason directly through there. Um, Jason, we appreciate having you on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes uh, with our listeners speaking about your new book and the tools that you have at your website to help the listeners um, get started on their own personal cultural transformation. Thanks so much Thank for you, being Greg. on. You bet. It was my pleasure. Thank you. 